welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Hello, hello. And uh, welcome back to another Knock On podcast, everybody. Uh, I guess I'm getting in the habit of always apologizing to you guys about the fact that uh, I'm a little bit late here getting another podcast out. So once again, I do apologize. I know that uh, most of you out there really like hearing these on your way to work, but unfortunately, my work has been overwhelming, and uh, which is a good thing, but with the show... Uh, Still having another quarter of new episodes coming. Uh, We've been busy there, busy with this new uh, book that I'm working on, and definitely busy with the knock-on store as well, uh, among other projects. So it's been a fairly hectic three months for the Dudley family and most of the knock-on crew, to be honest with you. So uh, got some awesome topics that we're going to go over today and as usual you know when it comes to archery there's only so many subjects that uh, are going to be common questions to archery so sometimes uh, they might get answered slightly different or we may go into it a little bit more uh, from time to time but uh, for the most part all these questions kind of lead back to the same basic things i mean when we look at archery there's really a bow there's arrows a release a rest stabilizers uh shot execution shot form and i guess picking picking what equipment between all those two that's really what it boils down to so uh, i definitely don't mind continuing to cover the same types of topics because in reality that's almost what I have to do um, a lot of times when I'm writing you know a magazine will want to have another article on spot and stock I mean even if I did one three years ago we're gonna have to continue to do so because there's always continually new people coming in and also uh, there might be slightly different things that worked one time but aren't working now or things that we've learned to do just a little bit better so um, and actually even with my archery you know I look through some of these techniques um, you know certainly there's times where uh, I favored one type of product or style of shooting uh, more than the other and then you know as maybe I start to develop a habit or something like that I move on and and get into Uh, a slightly different variation and I guess I just have to be able to continually tell you guys what those variations are and how they worked for me or how they didn't work for me or someone that you know I guess I trusted and let you guys pick your own direction to follow so uh, we're going to get into a lot of these good questions here Um, I guess one common question uh, that I've been asked consistently obviously is about how I'm doing with my shoulder and uh, you know progress is slow but progress is progress in my opinion so I've had a little bit of uh, trouble kind of getting my 
muscles to start working again. Uh, it's kind of weird for me to be able to flex my my bicep as hard as I possibly can, and it's perfectly flat. But some of that, I guess, comes from um, where I had a disconnection with that bicep on the upper part, and they had to put it back on. Um, so that's a little bit strange. Uh, it's kind of kind of weird when. You know, when I first started doing my physical therapy, you know, some of the first things that they have you do is kind of just hang over, uh, bend over and put your hand on like a table and then let your your arm that you're trying to work on just dangle down to the ground and then just kind of use your body motion to kind of get your arm to just start doing a pendulum kind of swinging in circles and you know, two weeks ago when I started that, my circles were probably about the size of a coffee can. Um, now they're getting bigger. Uh, it was funny the other day, someone came up to me and said, "How you know? How long do you till you think you'll be able to shoot again?" And I kind of did my best to raise my left arm up, and I was only getting it up about as high as my thigh. And then I kind of said, "Well, unless I'm shooting." you know, bunny shots at Reading, it's about all I've got right there. So, you know, unless I want to bend my right leg enough to where I can get my arm at least three feet up in the air, I don't really see it happening anytime soon. So um, I've kind of locked locked the archery dojo, and I have one bow sitting out. It's uh, this left-handed Hoyt Nitrum, as many of you out there who follow me on the podcast know. You know, I do want to enjoy this hunting season. Um, I've got, you know, several turkey tags. I've got a show to do. Uh, I drew, I got a, a grizz tag. Um, so I've got to make the most of it. So I'm going to be shooting that left-handed bow with a mouth tab and doing my best to slowly increase weight on that and uh, hopefully get to where I can be pretty efficient. I guess from hunting terms, I want to be ethical and proficient um, to about 35 or 40 yards. For my turkeys, I've kind of just made up my mind that on those first hunts, I wasn't going to make any shots unless they were you know, 20 yards or less. I uh, felt really confident there that I could be ethical and make good shots. And um, got three birds down you know they continue the birds continually got bigger the first one i shot was a jake and uh it's probably one of the most excited turkey hunts i've ever had i mean i couldn't believe that i was able to still be out hunting and you know it's kind of like it was kind of like when i first went back into the pro class or when i first went into the pro class way back when you know, I knew that I was shooting good enough to be there, but once you're there, you still have this little thing in the back of your mind wondering how good you're actually going to do. And for me, when when I made my first shoot off, uh, that was just the best feeling I ever had. I remember go, looking at the leaderboard and seeing the top five scores and going over and sitting down and you know sitting next to guys like Randy Chappell and Shannon Cottle and Jeff Hopkins and you know it's just like oh man that you know I, I am good enough to be here and when that first turkey came in and 
I did my best to I actually pulled back and didn't feel comfortable with my how I was lined up and everything so I actually had to let down um, which is very hard with your teeth for those of you who saw that picture uh, where I kind of took a picture at full draw holding my turkey up um, I did let that bow down and you can uh, but you have to have pretty good tricep muscles to do it since you kind of just do your best to squeeze your neck as tight as you can and bend your arm back towards you without hitting yourself in the face with the roller guard. Uh, but I drew back again and really felt confident with the alignment and the bird was being fairly still and uh, made that shot. And when I saw it go right through the drummies, uh, I can tell you, I didn't care how big it was. I, I just was excited to be able to be a hunter again. I felt like, I felt like a kid shooting his first spike buck or something. I mean, it didn't matter. The fact that I got a shot and made the shot, it was, it was just an awesome feeling. So that's pretty much, uh, how it all started. Now I'm kind of hooked on, uh, I'm kind of wanting to not, uh, kind of wanting to not maybe be ready to shoot as fast as everyone else wants me to just because I'm kind of enjoying doing something different and learning new techniques. Uh, I had to call Jeff Fabry and talk to him about how he tied his mouthpieces on and what type of material to use and what not to use and you know how to how to set your sight and what type of you know i'm literally having to pick new style new arrow shaft sizes i've never dealt with before uh i'm having to shoot with the wrong eye so all this stuff actually just helps me grow and helps me learn how to to cope with people who are asking me questions that I never really had to deal with. I mean, there's times where I'm with archers that ha that are perfectly uh, fine archers that are great, have great form and everything, but you know they may end up having a problem with the their main eye on their one side, and they have to shoot across a string, like you know, like Maya Marson has to do, or you know, back in um, like Richard Freeland back back in the ASA days. You know, people who shot one way particularly well but they couldn't use that that side eye so they had to change or maybe people then end up having an eye injury and have to switch to left-handed um all that stuff is is just things that now i'm going to be able to have somewhat of a relation to and be able to grow with you know and that was it was kind of like why i started to shoot uh recurve bows several olympic style recurve bows several years ago and it was because when i would go on these big traveling tours that i used to do for seminars and stuff and i will still do um, in the future but there was always so many questions regarding recurve bows and how it related to compounds so i just you know made this commitment to shoot one for a full year just so that i would be able to have that type of knowledge to be able to help people and be able to give them something that they can relate to because the one thing I can tell you about me and my approach to teaching is I just really feel like um, I feel like I'm best at just telling you guys in layman's terms how things work and how things don't work or how they did or didn't for me uh, there's been times where I've written for certain magazines and the editors 
send me my article back and I look at it and I'm like, wait a minute, I don't even know what word that is. You know, that's not, this isn't my article anymore. This is your article. And, you know, and they said, well, yeah, that's, you know, that's how I edit it. That's what I want. That's how I want it to read. And those are the times where you only see one article and one article from me in those magazines because if I feel like the the feel changes too much to where all of you out there who, you know, just seems like there's a huge line of you that like um, my way of delivering my experiences, you know, that's how I want it to always come across on paper. That's how I want it to come across on the show. And, uh, and that's how it is going to come across on a podcast because there's really nothing much scripted for this. It's just me talking. So this is really no different than you guys seeing me um, at a seminar or something and popping in and just throwing a question at me off the blue. There's going to be a lot of ums and hums because I never took speech class. So those are always going to be in there and you'll just have to deal with it. So but all in all, I'm doing good with my shoulder. Just thankful that I'm thankful that it's actually not worse than it is. And I'm just looking at this whole thing as, as a blessing and as an opportunity to be able to relate to people that are going to deal with this. It's a common thing in archery. Uh, I, I'm, I guess I've lost a lot of weight. Most of that's muscle for me. You know, I've always been a big guy, so... Maybe I'll start the new year, uh, you know, lighter than I've ever been. And I guess I'll be able to rebuild myself from the ground up and uh, things that I thought maybe weren't big enough before or things that uh, were too big. I'll just I'm getting a fresh slate. So that's how I'm that's how I'm looking at it. So it's going to be a pretty interesting year and hopefully I can continue to shoot well with what I've got that's that's really my plans anyway so um, the first question we're going to get into uh, is actually a question that was kind of thrown out there from Evan Fox um, and there's actually there's actually several of you Evan Fox uh, Travis Ragstad uh, then there was one other person too that I saw that had asked questions relating to release aids um, you know how to manage finger pressure. You know how to how to manage a hinge, and this is pretty interesting because actually, in the in the I think the August issue of Peterson's Bow Hunting, I'm actually going to be doing a feature article in relation to mastering the release aid, and this actually become comes from I just did an article. Um, talking about things that you can do in the summer to better your archery. It was for Peterson's archery or Peterson's bow hunting. I'm not really sure what they're going to call the article yet. But obviously, one of the things that I talked about was learning to let your release surprise you. And so, you know, there were several paragraphs talking specifically about release aids and how that's such an, a critical part of your archery form uh but then once you know once christian berg read it he kind of called and said hey i want you to to just go with it on that i want you to give me a whole feature on how to you know how to actually master the release aid 
So I'm going to cover in that article several things that I'll cover today. Uh, you know, really when it comes to releases, this question can be answered differently depending on what type of release you're really wanting to shoot. Um, ideally, when it comes to archery, you're looking for the same exact feeling and the same exact shot regardless of what release that's in your hand. And that's one thing that I show in the seminar you know, I'll have a release strap, I'll have a hinge release, I'll have a tension-activated release, um, and I'll have a thumb trigger, and I'll literally make four shots, and every shot looks exactly the same, even though I'm using four different types of releases that fire in a different way. Um, you know, each release is... is all these releases that have developed over time, they're all because at some time or another, a good archer that had a release that was perfectly fine started to either not like the feel of it or started to anticipate it and then had to come up with something slightly different so that they could go back to finding that surprise shot. You know, there's archers over time, and I'm one of them, that, you know, shot a caliper release and then started to anticipate it. And then they went into a thumb release right away to try to to try to try go away from punching the trigger. And then within a short period of time, you're punching the trigger. And then so you make the progression to a hinge release. And you shoot a hinge release for a while, and you start to learn it, and you start to figure it out, and everything's fine. So you go back to a trigger release. And everything's fine until all of a sudden one day something happens again. Then you got to go back to a hinge release. And then, you know, and then once the, like the Carter Evolution came out, a true tension activated release, which is, to be honest, one of my personal favorites for any, any archer out there, especially the newer archers out there. I think that's the only release they should ever shoot. You know, Sharon and Harry have been hunting and shot, 3ds and i know they're not competitive archers you know in the target world but i can tell you right now that when it comes to shot execution that's all i've ever taught them and they can stand outside and execute flawless shots each and every time and they really only shoot at 20 and 30 yards because that's all they want to shoot at but when it comes to looking at them i'm like they totally have archery figured out because all they're doing is doing their best to aim their bow and you can tell they're they're moving around and floating around and uh, which I do as well and they're just doing their best to get a surprise shot and even now I'm shooting a mouth tab and I'm trying to do the same thing it's like don't punch your mouth tab you know I'm sitting in there trying to aim at a turkey look at it with the wrong eye with the peep like six inches further from my face than I've ever been used to before and I'm like trying to line everything up and then just thinking okay just slowly relax just relax just relax just relax and damn the shot goes off and that's the same thing that you're trying to do when you're shooting a hinge release some people shoot it by actually rotating their hand or making a fist or squeezing their their pinky and their ring finger uh, I personally never like to shoot it that way. I always like to shoot it from relaxation. Um, I would pull, you know, I guess in the in the first uh, 
one of the first questions here someone asked you know travis asked you know how do you shoot a hinge release without punching yourself in the face like he did he said so sorry about your face buddy uh fortunately i've never done that but i've definitely witnessed plenty of it happen so you just have to consciously think about drawing your bow with your index finger and your thumb um, I never draw a hinge release with my other fingers on those other parts because there's times where all of a sudden you'll um, you'll just kind of mentally not think about it and that happens. And actually, while I was, I never punched myself in the face, but I can tell you that one of the pictures that I had posted um, on Facebook for a little contest was I was in a blue shirt. I kind of had a weird face. And actually, the last time that I drew my bow back before my shoulder surgery was um, I was out trying to get some pictures and and before I hurt my shoulder I was shooting a a Carter um, total control release which is a hinge release and I went out and the problem with my shoulder was the muscles were so torn that my shoulder kept compress it kept um, you know collapsing and compressing it towards my neck so I couldn't really hold my my posture and my draw length Um, but I really needed to get some photos before my shirt surgery because I knew that I had this book and I knew I had several assignments from target magazines that I had to do during the time I was going to be down so I kind of went out and got a bunch of photos for those but during that session I think I airballed like six or seven brand new pro fields like just launched them into orbit because everything would start to collapse and that wrote that hinge would rotate and fire so uh it it wasn't the best of days but you know typically when i'm shooting a hinge the right way i draw back with with really just my index finger and thumb and then i'll move I only ever really like to shoot two fingers on a release at a time. Um, Sometimes I shoot three, but you know I've always found that the less fingers that you have on the release, the less likely you are to to torque your angle. You know, one thing that's important with shooting a release aid is when you grab your release aid, and you know if you reach forward to your bow and grab your your release handle on the bow when you draw that release back and come to your anchor the angle of that release whether it's flat or whether it's straight up and down those are critical things to to remember it needs to be the same all the time and i can tell you that from it being if it's flat up to about 20 25 degrees if you have a variance between that zero mark and the 20 degree mark it has a lot less impact difference versus the guys that shoot it from that 20 20 degrees up to you know 45 degrees um you know or even some people shoot it you know straight up and down um when you're straight up and down you have to think of the twist that you're putting on your d loop and also the fact that a compound bow at full draw your string hardly has any pressure on it so if you shoot it fairly flat one shot and then the next shot you're shooting it straight up and down 
you're going to have a pretty big uh, variance in your left to right impact. Uh, I did a lot of testing on this with, with uh, a hooter shooter. So um, what I've got in the habit of doing is just drawing back with two fingers. And, you know, when I grab a release aid, um, if you just pick your hand up straight from your side and you curl your fingers to where the tips of your fingers kind of touches the inside of your palm, um, and then, but your hand is still flat on the outside. That's the position that you want to have when you hold a release aid. You know, um, there's there's two people that are out there that are really doing a good job spreading the word about our brand right now, and that's um, Ryan and Mallory. Um, I don't know if it's Branco or Bronco. I guess I haven't been. I haven't heard it properly, so whichever one it is, um, they've actually sent in some different photos and stuff, which on a podcast, I do want to get into doing some analyzing on this like I did for a buddy of mine, uh, Mike Fraley, several podcasts ago. But um, I can tell you, Mallory, the one thing that I want to work with you on is... Um, the inconsistency that you have sometimes in your pictures is the fact that you have an inconsistency in your release hand position. So sometimes your hand is very extended when you hold your release aid, and then sometimes it's not. So, you know, if you have your hand and you have your fingers extended and you look down at it, you know, and then you start to curl your fingers. Well, if you just bend them till the tips of your fingers kind of touch the, you know, the top of your palm, you know, that's one draw length. But if you straighten them out halfway, like you do sometimes when you start to really, you know, just hold the edge of your release, well, that, that's almost an inch difference on my hands. So that, that changes quite a bit. Um, you know, sometimes people, you know, when I talk to them about changing their draw length, I try to change their draw length more to get their posture correct, but also to change the positioning of the string on their face. But what they do is, because they're so used to always having that string come back and feel a certain way on their face, that even when you change your draw length, all they do is change how much of a fist they make on that release to ultimately change that draw length. And some people that can't get comfortable with the handheld release um, when they're at their anchor position is because some people put a death grip on the release aid and they end up making a fist and a fist is really hard to find a comfortable position on your face so what you do is you end up making your draw length too long so that you can put that fist behind your jaw and if it's back there it's simply too far back now, if you guys, while you're listening, you work on what I'm telling you, you take your fingertips, you bend, you know, just roll them over, bend your fingers until your fingertips touch the top of your palm. You know, if you're in that position and your the back of your hand is flat, you can put that up against the side of your face. And now anchor positions all over the place feel way more comfortable because you don't have your knuckles bent. To where it feels like someone's putting their fist on the side of your face. So when it comes to a handheld release aid, I pick it up, I grab it, I curl my fingers um, around the release aid, I keep my hand flat, 
And, you know, when I look straight down at my hand holding that release aid, the back of my hand is flat. The top, my top knuckles are flat. You know, my hand almost makes a 90 degree thing. And, you know, you're, you almost have like a square bent perfectly, um, you know, with your, your fingers on one side. You're covering three sides of the release with your fingertips. And the head of the release goes between your index finger and your middle finger. And that separation that you have there between your index finger and your middle finger, that is what I use as my reference point. And as I come to full draw, I put my index finger underneath my jaw and my index finger goes on the top of my jawbone. So, you know, that little trough that you have there, your jaw line goes right in that trough. And it's, it's almost like you're just pulling those fingers right into a slot. And that's one thing that um, I think I could definitely work with Mallory on looking at her pictures because sometimes her middle finger is actually more towards that jaw line instead of being above it. And what happens is that brings the arrow shaft lower on your jaw, which is a trouble area. Um, she actually does a really good job of keeping the arrow pressure very light on her face, which is critical and probably one reason why she gets uh, gets around having you know major problems, but maybe sometimes she does. I would venture to say there's definitely some times where she has some unexplained left arrows, and that's going to be from the times where your middle finger is lower on your jaw your fingers are extended more you've got arrow pressure your arrow pressure is sitting right on the like the bottom of your chin um and you end up having you know especially if you hold too long people that are shooting like a release aid where they're trying to pull through it if that if your arrow shaft is sitting down there by your chin and you're sitting there trying to pull, pull, pull and you, and you get to the point where you're actually holding too long, then what you naturally start to do is turn your head towards your release because you're trying to pull through it and most people naturally just kind of try to use their the turning of their head to pull through that release and as soon as you do that, you put pressure on the back of that arrow shaft and you're immediately sending that arrow to the right off your face then to the left out of the bow so you know when you're shooting your handheld release you should just get in the habit take it to work with you keep it in your pocket most of you who have seen me at a show or whatever like the ata show i had a release in my hand the whole day um there was always one in my pocket there you know if i ever kind of get nervous and want to talk about something I just or if I'm nervous while I'm talking about something I just you know I'm sitting there like picking my release out of my pocket and holding it and you know I'm literally building a reputable hand position a repeatable hand position consistently by always having it with me and holding that thing and learning how I hold it normally like you know, back when I had an, an office job, I always had a piece of string with me set to my draw length, and I just worked on, you know, kind of coming to a full draw position, 
making sure that index finger was underneath my jawbone, my middle finger was above, I, I felt slight pressure of my ring finger on my face, which is one of the ways that I learn my release angle. See, if on sometimes I draw back and all I feel is my index finger and my middle finger, then I know my release is flat. If another time I pull back and I can feel my ring finger on the side of my face, well now I know I've just changed it probably 10 degrees. If there's ever a time where I'm sitting there at full draw and I'm like looking through my peep and all of a sudden I realize, holy crap, I feel my pinky on my face. Well now I know that I drew back and my release is almost straight up and down. And when I do that, I cancel the shot. I let down because that is just an automatic uh, sign to me that I'm doing it the wrong way. So regardless of what release you shoot, you want to learn to keep that hand flat, roll those fingers around the release, and that'll also allow you to put your thumb into the type of position that I really like, which is I actually like my thumb straight. I don't like to have to bend my thumb. If I make too big of a fist on the release, I curl my thumb around the release, and I don't like that as well. Um, actually, what I may do here is I may post... Um, I might post some photos on the Knock on TV uh, page, as Facebook page, as well as the John Dudley page. I will post some pictures specific to release aid positioning um, so you guys can have a little something to look at while we're talking about that stuff. So we need to move on to another subject, which is a subject probably that I get asked six million times a year um, and I don't have a good answer for it but uh, Chris Shum is asking about bow stabilizing uh, bow stabilization how to be more steady with it honestly I've almost wanted to give up on this subject because so much of it comes down to your form your body size your body mass uh, what type of bow you're shooting uh, the grip position that's naturally designed into the bow, whether your grip is central in your riser, whether your grip is low in the riser, whether the bow is top heavy, whether the bow has a lot of low weight. Um, you know, every single year I shoot a slightly different stabilizer setup. There's been years where I've shot some, you know, some that didn't have any weight on the front at all. There's been some where I did have a little weight on the back. There's been some where I've had to have weight way out on the side. Um, the one thing I will tell you is I've never been an advocate of shooting a pile of weight. Some of these bows out there, I don't even know, you know, maybe I'm just getting to the point where I'm like an old school guy. Maybe there's, maybe there's like some junior, some junior archers out there, youth archers out there just like thinking I'm like a Fred Bear in my thinking here because I go to some of these tournaments and see these little like ladies that are half my size shooting bows that are twice as heavy and I'm thinking my god how do they do that all day long how can they if they're sitting here struggling to do it for you know 60 arrows during a tournament how in the world are they shooting 300 a day if they're really wanting to commit to being a pro archer how are they able to shoot 100 or 200 or 300 a day at home with perfect form when they can't maintain it for 60 here you know you have to be able to 
have a stabilizer setup that's going to allow you to at least maintain your posture. Um, some people are just so adamant about the bow sitting steady. And hey, I've shot with, you know, there's there's pros out there that I've shot with that I've shot on the line with for most of my life, and that is their mentality. If their bow isn't perfectly steady, it wigs them out. Uh, mine's never been steady, so, um, and I, I guess I shouldn't say it's never been steady. It, it has been steady, um, but it doesn't sit perfectly still 100% of the time. I would say there's 70% of the time I pull back and my bow just kind of sits there. Um, one of the biggest scares that I have now, uh, and once again, maybe things will change for me because one of the biggest scares I have right now is the fact that my left arm is so unstable. I mean, if I grab a cup of water and try to like lift it to my mouth it's like bouncing all over the place i mean that's probably the only thing that i have that's truly scary because i know that i was blessed with with my bow arm and the fact that i could pull back and i could hold fairly steady and you could put virtually any type of stabilizer setup you wanted on my bows and it kind of always did about the same thing what what it didn't do was the same thing for the same amount of time if I was shooting one that was too heavy for me. I could shoot it fine for a few arrows, but I couldn't shoot it fine for the day. So I went with what I could shoot for the whole day without having a problem. Um, I really think keeping your mass weight closer to the bow and closer to your hand really helps things out. I don't like, you know, for people that shoot uh, a lot of weight out front, you know, it, if that stabilizer does start to bounce, I mean, ultimately you've got a mass in motion that you're going to have to wait a long time for it to settle. So, you know, like back when uh, Randy Ulmer shot some, some of the older long stabilizers and he tried putting a lot of weight on there, um, you know, there'd be times where you'd see him at full draw and things were good, and if he had like a little hiccup, that weight would start bouncing and then he'd have to let down because you know that weight would be bouncing you, you couldn't slow it down so you know i think for me stabilization is important but when it comes to how well your bow sits i've personally found that draw length and your actual pulling position on your string has more relevance to the steadiness of your bow um, than having to do a ton of homework on stabilization. You know, I believe in a I believe in a front stabilizer. I personally like a longer one. My length on my stabilizers have always just been based on um, whether or not it's long enough for me to set it on the ground and take take pressure off my left arm so that I can rest it between shots. Um, so that's what related to length uh, I don't like a stabilizer coming out the back that gets in my way um, I would always wanted one that was easy to maneuver around I did always have a few weights stacked on the opposite side of my bow as my sight just so that when I pulled back um, with my eyes closed anchored and opened my eyes I liked it to where my bow would naturally be level so I normally did shoot some weight on the left side 
Um, depending on how top heavy the bow was naturally, sometimes that weight would be further out uh, than at other times. But when it came to front weight, you know, I always shot fairly light front weight. I would I would always like to have a little bit more mass. I would rather stack a few dog weights on my riser rather than have a whole bunch sitting out on the ends. So uh, that's really all I ever did. I know that one th- one thing, and I talked about this in a podcast. I'm not sure which one, but I did talk about the fact that um, years ago I built uh, several bows that were cloned, built them all on the same CNC machine, built them all, instroned them all, um, yet when I built them, all three bows felt different, and it really bugged me why, because all the, all the limbs came out of the same glass, um, came out of the same plate of glass, uh, all the strings were built on the same machine with the same exact spool of thread. I mean, I went through everything to try to build triplets, and once I built them, they all felt slightly different. And what I ended up coming to a conclusion with is because each of them, when I had just slapped a rest on there and then put my my loop configuration on the bow just so that my arrow is at 90 degrees... Well, depending on what position that arrow rest happened to be in when I pulled out the package, and then I put my arrow at 90 and tied my loop, all three loop loop uh, positions were different. So I was actually pulling from a different spot on the string each time. And that difference in pulling position ultimately changed how that bow started to feel, how it aimed. And that's why I think so many people find... Um, result from doing a little bit of tiller tuning it's not because they're balancing the limbs more and the limbs aren't fighting them because I can tell you right now most of these limbs are built on computers Um, you know they're manually fed but you know they're they're tested and digitally flexed on a digital reading the tolerances are so tight right now um, that you're not going to be able to feel the difference in, in what these limbs are right now. So um, the difference that you're feeling is if your pulling position isn't in a ideal spot in relation to where your front hand is positioned on the design of that bow, then it may want to fight you like up and down. It's going to want to bobble. So what I would recommend you doing is change the pulling position of your loop and what I do when I set my bows up for the first time if I'm really trying to find a bow that I'm going to shoot target archery with and that I want to sit really still then what I'll do is instead of tying on the knocks first you know doing your tied knocks above and below the arrow which most people do and tying on the loop what I'll actually do is just tie on a simple D loop and put it on both sides of the arrow and I'll just kind of set it in one position and I'll pull back and I'll shoot it for a while see how it holds and then what I'll do is I'll just kind of loosen that loop and slide it up about an eighth of an inch and then move my arrow rest up so that my arrows back to square and I'll shoot it some more there and see how it starts to see if it gets stiller if it starts to want to bobble up and down 
and then you know I'll shoot for a while there and I'll take the you know I'll take the loop and I'll move it below where I first started and I'll move the rest down so that my arrow rest or my arrow and my rest position are, are at 90 degrees again and then I'll start shooting again and if all of a sudden you know when I moved it lower it starts to sit just a little bit stiller I'm like okay well now I'm getting closer to to the sweet spot because there's been bows where when my arrow is at 90 degrees to the string there's been bows where just the actual position of the arrow was super close to the handle and then there's been bows where the bottom of my arrow shaft is literally at the top edge of the burger button dot there's been that much variance in finding that sweet spot to where my bow actually holds the best and like i said that has a lot to do with you know the cam system um the natural hand position in the riser you know you look at um like some of the pro comps um and then now you look at the podium you know the actual grip position in the riser was slightly different then you go back to like advantage um you know all these grip positions were slightly different so people have found well this bow you know sat perfect for me or this bow didn't and that's probably because those people had a set habit of saying okay when i put my arrow rest on i always set it up to where it's exactly dead center through the burger button hole or i always want mine below the burger button hole and if it's a slightly different model that way of thinking might not be right so that's why sometimes they find one that just works awesome sometimes they don't it's probably because of what their actual method is to getting to that spot so hopefully that helped you out stabilization is all about trial and error going out trying one thing trying something different the one thing i will tell you is you need to make dang sure that when you're doing trial and error that uh, you need to make sure that you're able to shoot the same during your whole practice session if you're too worn out by the end of your practice session then in my mind that's just proof positive that you're shooting too heavy of a setup and you need to change that a little bit so that you can get back in line so uh, we're going to move on to the next question here um, we've actually got let's see um, we're going to go with BC Combs asking a question here about the actual wind drift effects on 27 series arrows for 3D uh, versus smaller diameter arrows like like 2200 arrows, 2200s. Um, you know, this is something that I think I've talked about in the past. Um, you need to go back and listen to the podcast that I did with James Park. Um, James uh, and I did quite a bit of testing. Um, I don't even know. I guess it was probably, well, it's 10 years ago now. Um, we did a lot of testing um, on ballistics for arrows. Um, there was things that I was that was you know people weren't talking about in the industry when I started to shoot FIDA. Um, There's a lot of questions of you know why am I finding this because people aren't talking about this or you know why am I finding this or hey this is what I did and you know if this is what I'm finding why in the world would someone still want to shoot this arrow shaft and you know I ended up relying on James Park to help me uh, with some true numbers to this and I can tell you right now that 
Um, there's certain there's definitely advantages to certain arrows in the wind, and he he is the true expert. And maybe maybe James, if you're listening, I'm gonna read you this exact question, and I would like you, if you're listening, to give us. You can post it on the Facebook page. Um, you can post it on my Facebook page. But I, or you could send me a personal message and I'll post it for you. But um, I'm going to read you this exact question, and because um, I actually can't open my spreadsheets while I'm doing a podcast, otherwise my microphone's going to turn off, um, and I didn't print it ahead of time to give you true numbers. I do have it, but you are being very specific here, so um, I would actually like to know specifically specific answers to you so um, he says I'd like to hear about actual wind drift effects on 27 series arrows I'm assuming you know in BC that's that's kind of vague so you know are you talking about a full bore are you talking about a 2712 um, I guess James if you're listening go with the full bore shaft with a hundred grain points for math um, that way you have, he needs to know the actual weight of that 27 series arrows. And I guess just do them, James, do them all at 30 inches or uh, 29, do 29 inches of length. So he wants to know the wind drift effects of a 27 series arrow versus a smaller diameter like a 2200. I think the better thing, like a 2200 series gold tip, I would assume, or the nano size arrows. Um, says he gets some wind drift four to five inches with the 27 series arrow um, and a four fletch with a 10 mile an hour crosswind I don't know what distance that at, that's at because actually I would at the distances I shoot it would be substantially more and then it's um, it's a little bit less with the 2200 arrow um, but is that number enough to make a difference um, James figured at 50 yards. Um, that way, the 3D guys out there can have an idea of what a 27 of what a full bore, so a 27 series diameter, what a full bore versus you know, say like a, a 2200 series um, or even a fat boy, what the difference would be at 50 yards with you know 10 or 20 mile an hour crosswind. It's going to surprise you. Um, definitely uh, there's definitely a huge advantage I can tell you that when I shot 3D um, I always no matter how many bigger diameter arrows always came out when it came to wind drift and what I found when I was shooting at home um, it took a lot of the guesswork out when I stayed with the smaller diameter arrows so I always shot um, a 23 series arrow and I never shot bigger even now when I've shot 3D um, around the house here I normally shoot fat boys or my 2312 still um, because even though I've tried the full bores and stuff you know if you have one target where all of a sudden you get a bit of a gust and that you know five or ten mile an hour consistent wind all of a sudden has a variance to it you're gonna find a huge variance to where you're not gonna be able to really know how to aim off 
um, or how to bubble, you know, that's, which is something that I do quite a bit. So, um, hopefully James is listening and can give us some true numbers. I guess if he doesn't, I'll just send him a message and ask him. Um, okay. So next question here is going to be from PJ Cloet. And he's asking, uh, how about a little something on advanced range determination without using range finders? Um, well, we actually talked about that with a couple of the best guys out there. You should definitely listen back to the podcast with uh, Dan McCarthy or Jeff Hopkins. Definitely two of the best uh, range estimators that are out there. Or probably two of the top ten, I guess. I would I'd venture to say without taking credit away from some of the other awesome guys out there. Um, but there's a lot of techniques. I always personally like to find my 20. Um, I was always very comfortable with the, um, with a 20. But if I couldn't find the 20, then I always worked in 10s just because, you know, I played football for a long time. So I always got used to looking at 10-yard increments. So um, the 10s always came really, really easy for me. So I kind of just calculated off that. Um some people it's a 20 some people it's a 30 some people go off click you know just size of the target which if you're judging a lot becomes a lot easier to do Um, some people don't look at the actual size uh, of the target they more or less look at the clarity you know there's archers out there that really kind of get a feel for their distance based off how clear they can see you know i remember shooting with randy chapel and and he knew he knew on those, you know, for example, a lot of times get tricked on those targets that once they get past about 42 yards. Well, Randy knew exactly how far he could still look at a 3D target and see the rings with his eyes. So, and he had incredible vision. So he would be like, you know, he would back up on a target until he wouldn't be able to see the rings. And, you know, during the shootoffs, he's like, hey if we're out in the sun and i'm looking at that target and i know i can't see the rings i know it's over 43 yards you know because otherwise i could see them Um, that gives you a ballpark and then you can figure from there you know some people just work off um you know work off smaller yardage estimations you know five yards and for me it seems like the, the shorter the yardage is that you try to start to stack um you know it's easier to lose track um the one thing i'll tell you that made a difference for me when i was a 3d shooter was investing in the range so that i could actually look at the targets um, every day the same exact targets that we were shooting at um, because that really starts to help your mind learn um, what that target looks like you know the kind of how that target appears in your mind at a certain distance and it it all starts to kind of click naturally uh in the back of your mind and you know i personally liked always having my range finder with me and there were times where i would shoot a target i'd go up i'd judge the target i would shoot the target um then i would range it I would shoot again with my number the correct way, make sure everything was good for my sight marks. Then I would go to the target, 
and once I was at the target to pull my arrows, I'd actually look back to the stake, and I would try to judge it back to the stake as well so that I could confirm in my mind, okay, you know, that's that far. Here's how I can come up with it, you know, and you really start to look at it. Um, having a rangefinder with you every single day that you're out makes a big difference. Just, you know, some of the best... 3d shooters that we had you know i remember uh some of the best ones that there were were guys that were loggers guys that are out there you know constantly in the timber just looking at trees a certain distance from them as they're cruising timber and they said you know just we took a rangefinder with us to work and you just kind of look at a tree and say okay it's this far and just you know just sit simple confirmation depending on what you do for your trade you may or may not have the ability to be able to do that so um gonna get into one more question here and then i'm gonna have to shut down and restart so that this podcast isn't going to be too long and i'll actually give you guys a little daily double here since i'm down and got my groove on i'll go ahead and do two podcasts back to back but uh, the last question i'll do here is that is going to be from ryan um, bronco branco and he asks how often do you tune up and do bow maintenance on strings cams limbs limbs pockets uh remove or replace um items and honestly uh i don't play with stuff much i you know my bow it's always kind of bothered me when well i guess it hasn't bothered me it would bother me if i was that way i actually like it when my competitors jack around with their stuff all the time because you're never going to be comfortable if you're shooting something different every day um i know that I've taken bows around the world um, in bow cases, and I've got a bow case here at the house. It's done a million miles, and I've got, uh, I can tell you that I've never, well, there was one time I pulled my bow out, and it was, something was messed up with it. There's been a few tournaments that I've gone to where, um, I've had some strings break or cables break. Uh, mainly this was back in the days of uh, S4 when it first came out. It was pretty brittle. It kind of liked to explode. So there was a tournament. Actually, it was a, um, a world championship, ASA world championship. I pulled my bow back. The lower cable broke. Um, I was shooting high country at the time. And... Uh, Back then, everyone shooting toucan bows liked shooting liked that S4 when it first came out because you didn't have to worry about timing. My cable broke, um, ended up breaking a bunch of stuff on my bow. Sonny Chapel uh, ended up offering me to shoot his Matthews, uh, and I grabbed his Matthews. I actually changed the cable on it because I needed to change the draw length a little bit. Ended up going out, and somehow or another, during that cable change, um, I didn't get all the loops hooked around the post on the bottom. So uh, as I was shooting, uh, the bow blew up. Uh, 
so then I borrowed a bow from George Dixon, again a Matthews Conquest, and uh, ended up getting that bow sighted in in the nick of time and found myself in the shoot-off for first place, uh, which I lost. And that was the beginning to me shooting a Matthews bow. So it uh, was pretty funny how it all went down. You know, it was, uh, I guess, a... A God's ordained will of way of getting me out of those high countries, um, but I don't like to mess with my bow. I do like to put some wax on my string. I like to, you know, I like to put minimal wax on my string just so that it has some longevity. But typically, once I have a bow set up, I don't touch it. I just focus on shooting. Um, normally, I have an I set up a number one bow. I'll use that number one bow. Uh, I don't mess with it, and I'll mess with a number two bow. And if by chance I get a number two shooting better than number one, then I'll keep my number one as is for at least two tournaments. And if my number two is still outperforming number one, then my number one becomes number two. And number two doesn't get touched. Number one, um, especially during, you know, if I get a little bit bored, I'll start changing or trying something different. Or if I'm going to a tournament where I might want to shoot a slightly different arrow, um, I'll try to build that configuration on the number two. If I do get it shooting good enough to be confident in it, then again, I don't change my number one until I've performed a few tournaments. But, uh, it seems like over the years, the professional archers that do that are notorious for doing a lot of tinkering, they their scores uh, reflect that. There's times where they're just unbelievable, and you can tell everything's working, and then also out of nowhere, it's just like the wheels have completely come off, and uh, I've never wanted that feeling. I'm just, I can tell you right now, I'm never going to be the archer that goes out there and and uh, totally blows the doors off. Um, I'm just going to consistently be good, but probably not great. And consistency, in my opinion, is a lot better than being sporadic. So I don't play with my stuff much. Um, At the end of the season, I'll probably change axles, uh, change out strings, that sort of thing. But um, for the most part, I've always been able to get through a whole season with what I've got. I'm going to go ahead and end on that note. So once again, thanks everybody for tuning in. Can't thank you enough. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and get out another podcast for you here right away. And uh, just do your best to continue to spread word about Knock On, Knock On TV, and the Knock On Podcast because this is my platform to help give back to the sport that uh, has been so good to me. So thanks again, everybody. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. knockonarchery.com